Hello, and welcome to the Teaching in Medicine podcast, where we explore effective teaching of the healthcare providers of tomorrow. I am your host, Dr. Kathleen Timmy. I am happy to welcome back Dr. David Morton. He is a professor of neurobiology at the University of Utah School of Medicine and recipient of many teaching awards, including the University of Utah Distinguished Teaching Award. You can also access his educational videos and books at thenotedanatomist.com. You may remember him from an episode in 2021 on Tips for Learning, where we reviewed the book Make It Stick, The Science of Successful Learning by Peter Brown. And that episode is one of the most listened to of the entire podcast. I think it's actually the second most listened to of all of the 40 plus episodes. And so he is back with us today to discuss advice for teaching in the virtual environment. So welcome back. I'm so glad that you're here. Thanks, Kathleen. Happy to be here. All right. Dr. Morton, what have you been up to over the last couple of years? I I think it's been a year and a half since we last met. Are there any new roles or responsibilities that you're taking on with all of the curricular shifts at the School of Medicine? Well, what's new? A global pandemic's kind of new. It's kind of <laughs> old, but we're still feeling feeling that. Um, I still do. Uh, I still teach um, in our cardiovascular pulmonary renal unit for the second year med students called CRNR. But then the new curriculum, I'll be doing something similar. Still direct anatomy. Still do the anatomy lab and physiology, um, and then teaching from medical, dental, PT, OT, and PA students. Still do that all throughout the year. Wow, you really have your hands full and a lot of a lot of learners. I've the best I've got the best job in the world. <laughs> so listeners have been requesting an episode on virtual teaching, and you came to mind as someone who's a really talented educator in the classroom. And I'm really curious about what your experience has been like converting that dynamic classroom experience to the virtual environment during COVID and probably something that's going to linger on even beyond this pandemic. So in general, what was that transition like for you? So everyone, the transition had its different, uh, all of us had problems in one way or another. Um, Directing an entire course to go along was problematic because the number of players that we were working with, everything from staff members in the School of Medicine to individual faculty to how you do things with labs to how you do things with clinical skills and how you do things in simulations to how you do things with assessment, how you do things with TBL, PBL, CBL, all of that was a challenge. For me personally, though, as an instructor who is then responsible for delivering, and I'll use that word, delivering, teaching, anatomy, and physiology content, it was not a tough transition. Now, the reason why it wasn't a tough transition is that I've tried very hard from the beginning of trying to figure out this educational role is to follow certain principles. And if you can guide, if I could guide my teaching by those principles, no matter the scenario, it should work. And so, for example, uh, thinking of if you have if you're given a topic and just because I'm an anatomist, if you don't mind, I'll just use an anatomy topic. Say I'm teaching heart, then I'll figure out who are my students and what's the context. And once I have that, I then construct appropriate, meaningful, directive, uh, direct learning objectives. And once that's done, I figure out, well, what do I assessment do I have to do? That if a student completes the assessment, gives me that warm, fuzzy feeling that I know that if they successfully complete the assessment, then they know the learning objectives. So once I have learning objectives and I have an assessment, and in, in medical school, one of the most common are multiple choice questions. 
but that's not the only one in anatomy, all through labs and so forth. But once you have those done, the middle part now is, okay, now we know what we're going to do. And now we know how we're going to assess them. What's in between? And so in between, one of the things that I've been doing is try to do active learning in the classroom. So I created a video tutorials or used other video tutorials that were already online to push to the students to say, here are the learning objectives. That's what we want to learn. Watch this one of these one or two videos on the heart to learn that. So then when we're together in class, let's solve problems to get you ready for the assessment. Then COVID hit. Bam. And now professors that were leaning on a PowerPoint that had been used for 12 years. And now they're not there to really in person to tell students, know this, but not this, to fine tune the learning objectives, found themselves scrambling. Whereas I was like, all right, learning objectives are done. Assessment's done. I can't use lab, but I can do this with multiple choice questions. The videos are already finished. So the thing that changed was I'm not face-to-face -face with students. I'm now doing it on Zoom. So that transition wasn't so hard. And so whether you're face-to-face -face or, or a virtual environment, good learning objectives, an appropriate assessment, now what changes is in between. Uh, and so that was one of the – that was what I, 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 I hit. Now, that doesn't mean it kind of comes across a little bit arrogant that I'm like, oh, I didn't have that much of a problem. There was other things to challenge because now it, how, how do you interact with students? So something that myself, Dr. Kathy Moore and Dr. David Hutchison, the three of us in our department, kind of got together on Zoom and said, how can we do this? And we found out Harvard Macy's did a brand new, how do you create a virtual course? And the three of us got a certificate in doing that. And we learned a lot of the things like the challenges that is teaching in a virtual environment that we were already experiencing acutely at that time, um, how to engage students, how to what expectations they have, how to create an environment together. That was a lot of things that I got a chance to, to glean from that uh, certificate. And I read about that um, certificate program, and it's kind of been on my radar as something that would be interesting to learn. And so, yeah, I'm glad that, that you'll be able to pull from your experiences there. So it sounds like getting back to teaching basics, good objectives, good assessment strategies, and then being adaptable with, with the in-between. You know, it's interesting with anatomy. I think back to my medical school experience, and so much was learned through dissection and through hands-on um, sort of physical representations of what I was learning. How have you kind of taught those type of skills or how have you transitioned the lab experiences in particular? Yeah, that was that was actually one of the hardest ones we did because we tried to keep when it came to that fall of 2020, where at the University of Utah School of Medicine, everything in the first year had gone virtual. We as a group found a way to be able to do histology and anatomy and to some extent, clinical skills, they had one day a week that students would come to campus and in small groups were able to have a cadaveric experience. A number of schools did not do anything face to face. And since even before COVID and now during and after COVID, I've been looking at virtual and augmented reality. And there's a lot of good things that are out there. And I, if I were to see where the puck is going with regards to anatomy teaching virtually, that will definitely be an area. I still don't think we have 
something to be able to say, here's a complete product to be able to do. That day will come. We're not there yet. So we struggled just like everyone else in the world did for teaching anatomy during that time. But the lecture component was something that I thought had like a little blip and we just kept going. And now, you know, three plus years into the pandemic, what does your virtual teaching look like? Are there certain sessions that you had to convert to virtual during the pandemic that you've continued to administer that way? Like, yeah, what are some examples of what you do now? So I'm I'll actually share what happened, my experience with our physician's assistant program, because it highlights this element that if you can construct your course slash, for lack of a better word, the lectures or the content you're delivering over these good principles, it doesn't matter what the scenario is. So before the pandemic, I would come into a classroom for physician's assistants and I would teach them. Then they made a satellite campus so that we had, you know, close to 50 students in Salt Lake and then 25 or 20 students down in St. George. So I would be teaching in a classroom standing there with 50 students and then there's this big TV monitor at the back of the room and I would see a classroom of students and I would be teaching. The next year, COVID hit. All of them were at home. But because of the technology, they still had me come into class. I would stand in an empty classroom with this big screen at the back. And now I had 75 students that were out there. But the same thing, good learning objectives. They already watched the videos. We worked through problem sets. And then what we used is small group rooms. So all 75 students, they had assigned to a room and there was like six or seven students in a virtual room. They would go out for an hour, work on these you know, 15 questions. And after an hour, we'd all come back to a large group. So I'd have, and by large group, meaning I'm in an empty classroom and there's a big TV screen with 75 faces. And I would say, all right, Jose, what did you and your group come up with for the first question? He would unmute. He would talk. Any questions for Jose? This is really good. Next. Jessica, what did your group come up for the second one? And we engaged just like we had in person, except now everyone's virtual. The next year, happens. And what happened, we're like, hey, you can have some students in class. So then what I happened had was in Salt Lake, I'd have a third of the class in person there and two thirds of the Salt Lake class in Zoom land. St. George, the same thing. Half the students were in class, half were in Zoom land. So now I had physical students in a classroom in Salt Lake, physical students in St. George, and about half the class in Zoom land. Same thing. They had the learning objectives. They had the videos they watched. We then had the problem sets we'd work on. And they'd do small groups in the classroom and small groups virtually. And then we all come back and solve them. The next year, come back. And then they're like, everyone's back in the classroom. But we have some people that are sick or who've tested positive that they're in Zoom land. So now we have a lot of people in the classroom, Salt Lake, St. George, and a handful in Zoom land. So every year for five years, it changed. So And so I almost got to the point that I'm like, all right, what's next? (laughs) (laughs) But because those principles I tried to follow and I tried to stay true to them and what happened was how you engage in a virtual environment was something that I had to tweak. But the construct of the content and how it was assessed remained quite – it's about the same. And throughout it, you can't use student evaluations as the only way of determining. But 
throughout this student satisfaction evaluations in my own perspective as an instructor and then working with the physician's assistant uh, administration, it went well. It went well. The student's education, I don't think it it, it hit them. Hard. I, I don't think it, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, detracted from their education. Other than for a couple of years, our labs didn't work. We did not have cadaver labs. But did, did that answer your question? That did. And did you feel like they were still meeting some of the objective milestones like assessment performance or ability to progress to the next year of training? Was that pretty similar? All the same. Like I found that I did not find a, a decrease in any of the years for that. So but one of the things and going back to your original question, you know, like what has kind of changed and learned, I've learned that there are many different ways that we can and should pivot so that when we have students in a virtual environment, how we can create that culture. So some of the things I missed, I missed that 10 minute break between class where one. So in, in medical school, we'll go back to now school medicine. So you'd have we have 125 medical students, depending on the day, we have anywhere between 40 and 80 that show up in a physical classroom and that we have a four hour chunk of time. So Professor A comes in and she lectures from eight to eight fifty. And then there's this 10-minute window where Dr. A is leaving and Dr. B is coming in and students are standing up and they're stretching and they come over and they're like, eh, tell me about, I can't remember this Wigger's diagram. Tell me again what this red curve is compared to the green curve. So I'd sit down with them while my colleague would be going over uh, reviewing some of the drugs for heart failure. At the same time, Professor A is leaving and two students are following her out and Dr. B comes in and two students are following Dr. B up. There's this a culture that forms of people talking. In Zoom land, 850 comes and boom, every camera goes off. There's no sound. People go to the loo. They're coming back and a lot of the cameras are off. So we had to be creative in finding ways to create a culture that we could still engage with the students, still answer questions. So we started doing these virtual just the, the, the cameras on. Dr. Uh, Jenkins or Dr. Smith and I would be here and just to be there and answer questions and students would come on. And sometimes they'd be in their car. It'd be interesting watching, but they're there and we're able to engage. And it varied on the number of students that participated. And I don't think it got to the point that we were as good as it was in person, but it was a start. And then there are some other things I learned from the Harvard Macy program of engaging and creating a culture that, um, some we've used and some we have not used yet. Um, I don't know if I could go over that now or if you want to hit that in another part of the, uh, the discussion here. Yeah, I just wanted to bring up, too, from a faculty perspective that I really miss those 10 minutes when you're walking from one session to another. That was great networking. And, you know, what are you working on? This is what I'm working on. And like you said, now in Zoom land, when the meeting's done, everybody disappears. And there's none of that kind of transitional, you know, networking and, and catching up. And I really miss that. Um, but it's neat that you've made a deliberate effort to have some of that informal time with the professors built in between sessions. That's really great. Um, I did want to ask just a follow-up question um, from your teaching experience where you had virtual and in-person learners between Salt Lake and St. George. Were you facilitating this entirely by yourself or did you have any like a local teaching assistant in St. George or anybody else on your team that you could utilize in this unique environment? <laughs> Good question. Um, 
For the PA program, they have um, John's awesome. He's in this little booth that he helps coordinate the IT. Basically, it's like, but the thing is, I plug in. So I'm plugged. When I say plug in, here's my computer. Here's like my keynote that I'm using. I've already pushed out to the students through a learning management system that we use Canvas at the U. Um, the associated PowerPoint with the student version of the questions, which is here are the questions, but the answers aren't there. The slides that I'm going to be projecting have the question, answer, question, answer, and I'll provide that for the students after. So what basically the technology would do is make sure that we don't lose connection, but everything else it was on me as the instructor to do. So I started, and part of it is just making sure the students don't feel like they're forgotten. I remember when I was in graduate school, in two previous versions of our curriculum here at the med school, I did my my uh, graduate work here. Um, we had all the medical students in this one lab looking at microscopes, and there was this little room off to the side where there was eight scopes for the dental students and me, the only graduate student. And there would be days where we never saw a professor because they just forgot the room was there. And not because they didn't care, just they're busy answering questions. So they never, so we were always on our own. And I've never forgotten that as I'm in Zoom land where I'm standing, I've got physical students in Salt Lake, physical students in St. George and students in Zoom land that I made it a point that every time I asked for a question, uh, if anyone had questions or asked for an answer, I would just rotate through. I'd say, Salt Lake City, who feels like answering this question? Oh, fantastic. And I'd choose a student. All right, Zoomland, who feels like talking? Wonderful, thank you. St. George, who wants to answer this question? That I would just rotate through to make sure that every time there was, or I'd say questions, hey, St. George, you got any questions? Zoomland, any questions? To make sure that they always felt like they were involved and that it's not that I'm talking to these cohort of students in front of me in Salt Lake City and the rest are just actually like in the stands watching a basketball game, watching the events, but they're not engaged. And yeah. that became part of it is that that was one of the things I had to try to make sure I do is involve them. Yeah, it sounds like you were really deliberate about that and pulling from your own experience of maybe being physically separated from the rest of the group and not getting as much interaction. So I'm curious about some of the other techniques that you did learn through Harvard Macy that you maybe haven't had the chance to apply yet. What were some of the other takeaways from that program? So um, one of the things when I went in to, um, into, the, into the Harvard Macy program, there was the cadaver lab was one thing I was trying to sort out with. There was another activity that I used that I found over the years has been helpful for on a lower end of Bloom's taxonomy, even up to like the middle of Bloom's taxonomy. And I, I've called them paper puzzles because they started with paper. And what I would do is I'd know that there would be, if the student was learning the heart, they have to know the chambers, valves, vessels, and coronary circulation of the heart. There's the gross anatomy. But it's not only they have to know them, they have to be able to recognize them, say, in an illustration of the anterior view of the heart or the posterior view of the heart or from a lateral view of the heart. And then they have to be able to identify it in, say, where are the chambers in a chest x-ray and where are the valves in an axial CT and where are the chambers in axial CT or about MRI imaging or how about ultrasound. And they have to be able to recognize the functionality of these chambers in pressures. Um, and, uh, and so like 
the Wigger's diagram came into place, or volume above that. So Wigger's diagram, and how do you correlate that to the EKGs? And so what I found was that there's all these, so even though it's the heart, there are these islands of information. So what I would do is I would put a picture of, say, the right atrium and a chest X-ray with an arrow pointing to the right atrium. And then I'd put the left ventricle and then a Wigger's diagram showing the pressure of the left ventricle. And then I'd have eight nodes of information. I'd print them, cut them out, give them an envelope and tell students, match these. So they'd pick up this piece of paper and pick up that piece of paper and they'd talk. And I loved it because of it, the students were interacting with pieces of paper and they were talking and they were putting these pieces together. COVID hit. Boom. No more paper, no more in person. So I came to the Harvard Macy's and one of the questions, how could I do this? So there's a couple of programs that they had, you know, a couple of things we talked about. One of them that they talked about was Explain Everything. There's a program that if you look, there's a free version. It's called Explain Everything. And it basically is this virtual whiteboard that more than one person can interact and it became, I actually did my little project on this where you could then go on, explain everything, and I could be moving a node of information and someone who is in a location also interact with the same thing. And we could interact at the same time. And then you could also write on it, though. So you could put this and so you could put a pair together and say, this is the right board of the heart in a chest X-ray, which I think that's the right atrium. And this is showing, actually, I can see the coronary sinus. And I think that's the tricuspid valve from above. That's the right atrium. So they could not only pair them, but they could write so that I could be actually moving between different rooms, see what students are doing, and be able to see what they had done. So explain everything has become, and you can use it for many things, but it's a virtual whiteboard that you can write on, that anyone involved in that whiteboard can write on, and you can upload and move pieces of information on. So that became really cool. That sounds really cool. I'll include a, a link to explain everything in the show notes so that listeners can check it out. Yeah, it was it was cool. Um, and uh, and there is a free version. I think it was like 500 megabytes of information you could use for free before if you want to upgrade and get the fancy swancy version with unlimited space and the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there is another one that's called Flipgrid. Now, Flipgrid became, so there's many different ways of interacting. So social media became a big topic. And it's not that social media is not helpful. It's just harder to control as a professor who has control of everything. Flipgrid, it's one of these programs where you can create short videos. So it was the way that this is how we had these small groups in Harvard Macy's. We all created, we've given one minute to create a video about ourselves. It was actually the pro the, the purpose of this was not only introduce yourself to the group, it was to show how to use Flipgrid. You make this video for one minute, it then goes in this group of other videos. And so the five of us in our group could watch the other four videos of each other. Then you could also push out and make assignments. So we I'm in the process of creating a certificate program for our department on anatomy because we realized A lot of people would want to learn topics virtually. So one of the things that we include in many of our modules is a flip grid that says, here's an assignment, create a five-minute video and post it, and your classmates in your group can watch these videos and comment. So it could be, we want you to create a video 
that shows the blood flow, a red blood cell starting in the superior vena cava and ending in the aorta, show all chambers, valves, and vessels that this red blood cell would flow through. Use whatever you want to show this. So now a student can be creative. They could actually use a model. They could have a drawing and point to it, but they need to make a video of them doing it and then their classmates get a chance to watch, and then you can make comments as well on the videos. And so it's a way of, again, having being able to interact with each other, but do so that it is um, asynchronously being able to do it, so you don't always have to be at the same time. I create my video and post it Monday morning. They do Tuesday afternoon, but it has to be done by Friday. The future is now. Yes, exactly, yeah. <laughs> And it became one of many other ones. There's this other one called Powtoons that you mm -hmm. can create um, uh, different ways that if you as a professor are trying to find ways of creating content, it became a fun one. Um, yeah, I'm blabbing again on this, Kathleen. <laughs> well, I mean, that's why I invited you. You're the expert on this topic. Um, and I think, too, just I'd like to, you know, name Flipped Classroom, which is completely, you know, one of the tools that, that you've been using for a long time. But... Um, providing some of these videos or teaching tutorials for your learners and then having that valuable classroom time being more application and engagement. And it seems like the virtual environment's a perfect place to have yeah. that happen. It, it was, and it's, and that's what is, is cool. Like I'll tell you one of the things from that book, you know, um, uh, so every, uh, to, uh, make it stick. Make it stick. I always get that mixed up with made to stick because there's the two. So <laughs> make it stick. Those principles of retrieval practice, spacing, and interleaving, where when I go back, when I started Flip Classroom, I thought the magic was in the Flip Classroom, and it's not. The magic is that the Flip Classroom was simply a vehicle of incorporating retrieval practice, spacing, and interleaving. That's what it became as a vehicle for this. And so when, when we look at, well, what happens if you're not in the classroom, you're now online, as long as you can apply those principles you can still have a very good educational experience. And so that's why the questions I moved to online, um, that we were able to keep doing that. There is something, I'm, I'm not saying that there is, there is not a benefit of being face-to-face, belly-to-belly, seeing their faces because so many students would turn off their cameras on Zoom. Um, so that, that engagement where they disconnect, I had to find ways of trying to help bring them out and that's why part of it was putting them in small group rooms for a while. So they're in a group of five or six. They'll turn their cameras on. They come back to the big group. If I had a 125 students, when we did team-based learning, I'd have all 125 med students. In the big group, I'd see some students turn or many students turn their cameras off. It's okay. I'm not going to make them turn it on. Because many of them, again, had circumstances they were home with children and, and home in an environment they didn't want to see, the, the rest of the world to see. But at least in small groups, they were able to come out and to show their faces, and then they come back to the, the large group. Um, yeah. Yeah, and you're kind of respecting them as adult learners, too. If they feel like they need their camera on, great. If they don't, then that's, you know, their prerogative in, in the learning experience. Um, you know what? On that, one other thing that, that was a benefit on using and the vehicle we used in, uh, at our school, University of Utah, was Zoom as the way of interacting with students, the chat feature became gold for me. Like it was amazing because now I'm, I'm going through and answering questions and asking questions, but a student who is shy, 
who never raised their hand in class had a voice like a voice like everyone else is a matter of fact probably even more so because i was always watching so i'd be answering the question oh that was a good question that you asked there uh yes that is the left atrium because the blood goes in the left ventricle now wait a second okay next question all right uh the next question asked by so and so is asking about chamber uh pressure in the left and right ventricle all right the left ventricle has higher pressure Right ventricle is lower because it's only going to pulmonary circulation. Oh, there's another question in the chat. Now, what I felt like as I was patting my belly and rubbing my head, you know, that, you know, or whatever that thing is, there was, I felt like my, my head was continually going to faces on the screen into the chat. But I tell you, it didn't make the hour boring. That's <laughs> an instructor because, but I was able to answer more questions I felt from students when everyone was virtual than I am in the classroom. So now, for example, in uh, the University of Utah, in our health science center, the classrooms have all the, you know, the stadium seating, but now there's a TV to the side that is running Zoom with the chat. So I'm able to look and talk to the students and then look over the TV and go, oh, there's a question in chat, answer the question. I'm not typing it because they're watching, so I'm able to give it. So students who watch a video later are able to get the questions that students in face-to-face asked and then Zoomland had asked. Yeah, that's interesting that you're actually hearing more questions and, you know, more voices across your audience. I think back to those really large stadium classroom experiences, and I would be very unlikely to raise my hand in a group of 100 for fear of looking dumb or just overall being a shy person. Um, But I can type in a chat. And so, you know, and sometimes you have a question, but there's not really, you know, you don't know the right time to interrupt or to bring that up. But I think the chat does give a voice to to people who are kind of more of that temperament. I agree that that is I've loved that because you can hear from students that are on the more shy side. I love that. Are there other ways that you keep your learners engaged? I can think of some um, experiences where I've been, you know, facilitating a session and there's small group breakouts. And then there's people who clearly don't enter the breakout room, um, assuming they're probably not at their computer or, you know, have left the session for whatever reason. Like, how do you how do you reach learners who are pretty checked out? Gotcha. I see. So if you have like 50 faces and you're like, everyone go to the breakout rooms and a bunch of people go and there's like 12 faces. Yes. You know, like, <laughs> not you <know>. faces, but <laughs> exactly. Not even faces, just like a black screen of, or their photograph. Yeah. Um, that, that is a good question. And I don't have a perfect answer to that. Um, one of the things that I try to do. And so in answer to your question, I first that as well. I'll usually send them a private chat and just say, hey, how are you doing in case you stepped away and you come back? Everyone's gone to the breakout rooms. I usually have one of us because when I'm directing a course, so this is now wearing my, say, my course hat, and there's two of us directing it. One would go through the, the breakout rooms and one would stay in the main room. So in case someone had had something come up and they come back, we're like, hey, welcome back. Everyone's in the breakout room. You're in breakout room seven. They're like, oh, sorry, I had to go take care of something with my dog. And they go on. And then there's a few that never do come back. So one, the way we addressed it is one, um, when people go in breakout rooms, we usually kept one person there to help facilitate to that there's always a leader, a face that if you come back to the main room or if someone gets kicked out by accident or their internet connection goes back and they come back on, 
someone can direct them. And that way they always feel like they're not lost. There's always a face there to help them. The second thing is we work really hard to just make good educational activities. Students vote with their feet. And I'm not saying that if it, that those who are listening had an experience and people aren't going, I'm not, uh, please don't, I'm not trying to say that, oh, you just had a bad educational experience. I, I'm not saying that. What I'm trying to say is that there are certain things, they are adult learners. They are going to, some of them are going to be ment- physically present, but not mentally. But the, the stronger we work to make an educational experience that makes it worth them going, they vote with their feet. And what we found is, um, students would cherry pick activities and we recognize that some activities they had to be there for expected attendance but we only have a few of those in the medical school curriculum they would come for the paper puzzle activities because they could review a lot of material in a short amount of time and whenever we had clinical problem sets like flip classroom they wanted to come to that because they had a chance to practice even if they had not done the work ahead of time because they knew they would be able to glean what was important in that topic. And the other one is we just try really hard to get to know the students um, and call them by name, use that. I'll, I'll give you a small example. This works in person and on Zoom land. I'll say, I really want to hear how you're all doing with this content. I'll sometimes call a student by name. If you're rather embarrassed or you don't want to talk, I'm not going to, I sell, I'm not going to embarrass you. All you can just say is pass. That's all you have to say. And I'll go on. I'm not going to try to grill you on this, but they know that I reach out. And so if there's a student like that is quiet, but they probably would engage if asked, but they're just not going to raise their hand. That's what I would do. So in Zoom land, even if someone had their camera off, that is something that I would say. I'd go, oh, uh, what are your thoughts on this, Stephen? And there's more than two or three seconds. I go, all right, next. All right, how about you over here, Lydia? What are your thoughts? And I and I'd pivot, so it wouldn't be dead space. But even if their camera was off, I would try to engage with them. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Are there other challenges that you've come across, or that your colleagues have come across in the virtual environment, and maybe tips for overcoming those? So the answer is yes. <laughs> and you can pass too. You're also allowed to pass. <laughs> um, is, is trying to think of how you, you actually brought up a big one. How do you engage with the students, right? So one of the, so this is one that we end up having. Okay, not here's one of a handful. Is I missed having a chance that when you were face to face with students and standing in the classroom, in the school of medicine, everything's recorded. Most students, I always thought of the med students in three different groups. There's a group that are there every day, rain or shine, in the classroom, good lecture, bad lecture, that they are there. And there are anywhere between 25 and 30 of them. And then there's another 30 or 40 that will come based upon what the activity is. And then there's another 30 or 40 that no matter what you do, they're not coming unless they have to. And that's okay, right? And so, but we knew that many of the students who never came would watch the videos. So we knew we could communicate with them. So if we were like, oh, by the way, here's something you should keep in mind. We didn't, it did, it wasn't as natural. So what we found is we needed to then communicate on a regular basis. 
Some of our course directors would, at 5 p.m. every day, send an email that said, here are two or three things to keep in mind from the heart failure lecture. You need to know A, but not B and C. We talked about it, but it's not learning objectives. And then make sure that you remember tomorrow we have a TBL, that there's an IRAT and GRAT at 8 a.m. Make sure you're there on time. And then we're going to be doing a CBL in the next two hours. Make sure you take the notes. Hey, take care. And we'd send that out every day. We didn't do every day. We do like two or three times, usually twice a week, because we felt that some students then got saturated with messages, but it was a way of sending out reminders. And that has actually brought in, and many of our course directors in the school of medicine in the undergrad, in the preclinical courses still do that. They send out either every day or every other day, they'll send out these email reminders to say, this is what happened today. Make sure you remember this about tomorrow or the next day. So that was one of just trying to just get that communication. And the other one is just that um, how you best answer questions. Canvas became a place, a repository that some people ask questions, but not everyone. So one of the things that we still don't have a perfect way of doing it is if you get one out of 125 students that says, I still don't get the difference between nicotinic and muscarinic receptors. I spend some time and I send the email out. One student got that answer. So then we'd go into Canvas and we try to make those discussion. There, You can do these discussion boards on Canvas, but then a lot of students never looked at that. And so in the completely virtual environment, it was harder to answer those. And now that we kind of have a half virtual, half in-person environment that's going now, I still don't think we have a perfect way of trying to interact. Students have a Slack channel that they use. So sometimes I'll say, hey, can you put this? I'll send it to a student and say, can you put it on your Slack channel? So it's getting out there, but I don't have control over that. That kind of happens. I call it the underground where you're running a course and the students, and this has been going on forever. I don't see what's going on, but they're communicating together. So we'll give them information to put on the underground. I just don't see how many students get it or don't get it. Sounds like you have a lot of different ways of reaching students through recorded lectures and Canvas and email, making yourself available between sessions that hopefully people get their questions answered. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Yeah. Do you set any expectations or ground rules as a part of teaching in the virtual environment? Or are you more leaving it up to your learners to you know, vote with their feet and be present for what they find valuable? It depends on this. So in the School of Medicine, we have what's called expected attendance by translation, mandatory attendance, <laughs> call it expected attendance. And there's only a couple of activities, our team-based learning and case-based learning sessions, our expected attendance. There's usually one of those each a week for two hours each. Whenever there's a patient presentation, it's expected attendance. And then the occasional small group activity when we have clinicians coming in, like, for example, in our uh, CRR course, we'll have um, 10 different cardiologists come in and just read through EKGs with a small group of 10 students. Um, we say that's expect, uh, manda- uh, expected attendance because of the number of clinicians coming and the value of it. But really, out of a 20-hour week of content, maybe six hours is expected attendance and the rest is on their own. And so, um, and the expectations is your adult learners, please learn this. We also have all of our midterm assessments are formative. They count 
for points. So the only big one is that summative exam at the end with a few points in them between. So the expectations are your adult learners. Um, so we here's the information and we have every two weeks we have a midterm quiz, but it doesn't count for points. So some students take them very seriously, some don't. So one of the things that we ended up doing and continue to do is if a student, we take a look at these formative quizzes and quiz one, we'll take a look and I'll see 15 students did not pass. So then we reach out email individually, every one of them. Hey, we just want to take a look. We know that you're all kind of at different places in your study. We recognize your score probably wasn't what you hoped to be. We just want to see how you're doing anything we can do to help. Usually half of them will get back to us and said, I just had a bad day. And then a few of them would be like, I just didn't put any time into it. So I'll do it, but I just haven't yet. But we'll always find five or six students that are like, I'm drowning. I don't get what's going on. Then we can focus and try to help them. In person, you could walk up to a student. Now, virtually, it's harder. Um, and, and, I, and I should mention one thing on this, Kathleen. My vantage point of this whole discussion has been if we're having a virtual environment with a synchronous course starts in September, ends in December, and they're all the same students. But if this is a virtual course that is online and you never meet, and it happens over a course of, say, five months, but you never really interact in person because they're doing asynchronously, I should say I recognize there are additional problems that can occur. I just have not had experience with that. So that's one that is not my uh, that I've not done yet is one of those courses. These are courses where all the students are every two weeks on that Monday, they've got an assessment and they have to learn the material in between. And I'm the one directing that teaching. That's the type of virtual environment I've, I've been talking about up to this point. That makes sense. Now, if you think about it from the learner perspective, do you have any tips for learners to get the most out of teaching virtually? No, that's a, that's a great question. So the advice that I would give for students is to, it's one of these things of, of planning. Uh, there's some students that come to class because they know that is the way of forcing themselves to kind of learn the material. When you're in a virtual environment, like what happened during the throes of COVID, and for some courses now that have remained online, it's important to stay up to date and to find some way to kind of help you stay up to date and not far behind, you know, fall behind. Um, and whether that is having a weekly or bi-weekly review session or study session with some, one or two of your classmates that you know that on Tuesday afternoon from four to six, every Tuesday, you're going to be reviewing the material that happened Friday and Monday. That forces you to stay on task. If you're one of these types that realizes I'm going to fall behind, I'm not good at setting schedules, talk with your professor, have ways of checking in. It's the checking in that I find that's so important. And the students that really struggled during COVID checked out. And that was one of the biggest challenges I found, especially with regards to trying to learn the material and mental health, is that when they check out of the material and they check out of CBLs and TBLs and no longer turn their camera on, it's the way of finding a way of checking in. And if you find yourself that you're one of these types of individuals, tell the professor at the beginning of the course, say, during COVID, this is what happened to me. And I don't want it to have to happen. 
professors, I really feel, even though you have some professors you might not love at first, most people that teach give a crap about their students. We really do. And we're there. And we really want to help. And I would be surprised if you ever reached out to any professor and say, I'm afraid I'm going to be that I'll check out. What can I do? And they'll say, well, let's every Friday, let's check in together and see how you're doing. Whether like a 10 minute Zoom meeting. And I ended up doing this with a handful of students during COVID that they would just do this on Thursday morning. No, I lied. It was Friday morning that I did this for an hour. And there was a group of them and they knew each other that we just get on for a half hour. And I just say, how's it going? And some of it was just like, hey, I'm doing fine. I just want to hear what questions that they had. And that was the way of checking in. So that is one. Um, yeah, that, uh, yeah, those, that's the first one that comes to my mind. Yeah, that accountability is huge. And whether it comes from peers or professors, yeah. I could see how that falls away when you don't have that classroom environment you're expected to physically be at. Right. And I, I, I go to the gym every morning at um, 6 a.m. And why? Because if it doesn't happen, then it won't happen during the day. Um, but if my wife doesn't go, I usually don't. <laughs> so that has become that that has become like for me that I go because also if she, I know she goes, if I go or not, she's going every day at 6 yeah. a.m. So I go. And so it's become my way of saying, hey, I'm 50 years old now. I've got to stay in shape. I've got to stay active. So one of them is I go to the gym because I know she is. And if you're one of these types, that's like I'm going to fall behind. Find that person that will get up and get into the gym at 6 a.m. every day. That that was when you find someone that you know is not going to help you fall behind if you can stay on with them. So, yeah, that's it's good to have an accountability partner for sure. I well, I learned so much from our conversation. I think some of my main takeaways are, you know, back to the basics of education, having solid objectives, assessment that are tied to those learning objectives. Um, I really liked some of the kind of technology on technology that you brought up. So using Explain Everything, Flipgrid, Powtoon, and I can include links to those, um, but really thinking about how to keep that virtual environment engaging so that your learners are voting by their feed and there because it's a, an exciting and worthwhile experience. Um, was there anything else that you wanted to share today that we didn't get a chance to talk about? Um, uh, so Zoom has become one of those. It's, it's, and I imagine that like other Zooms or I know um, uh, Microsoft has a, a similar thing. Um, whatever your institution uses, Get to learn the bells and whistles. That is part of the thing I've realized. Like in Zoom, you get to know, hey, and some professors are like, all I know how to do is once it's my turn, I upload and present, and that's what I'm doing. If that's where you're at, hey, that's grand. We start from somewhere. Next, if you're not using the chat feature, learn how to use the chat feature. That's really cool. You can do a lot of interaction with your students simply with the chat feature. If you're like, I can upload and show my presentation, use chat next, maybe learn how to do a poll and that there's a way that you can put a question in the poll is like doing clickers in a classroom where you can then say, hey, I've just been talking for the past 10 minutes about um, all the four different types of tissues in the body. Let's do a couple of questions and you can put a poll question and everyone there can answer the question and you can get an idea how the people participating are doing. So it's a way of engaging like clickers that we did in the classroom. If you're like, I've got that and chat and poll, 
breakout rooms could be the next thing. Had to do breakout rooms and, and see how that could be used where you can send students off and then bring students back and to do that. And so th that is, I would uh, encourage to get to know that technology because embedded in the technology is a lot, help a lot in, in engaging the, the your students. Yeah, I think that's a good plan for development and <laughs> kind of Zoom skill sets. Um, well, I close every episode asking for a teaching pearl or piece of advice. It can be related to this topic or to anything else, um, education or life related. Do you have any piece of wisdom you'd like to part with today? Oh, that is a good question. Uh, I, I would say that uh, something that I've been thinking of a lot lately because we're doing this curriculum reform is that we talk about evidence-based medicine a lot. And I, and I think if we, not if, evidence-based medicine, evidence-based science is a given. It just, and, and I think anyone in medicine would agree, if you're going to do something with a patient, what evidence do we have that's going to help them and not hurt them? In science, if you're presenting a theory or uh, adding to the body of knowledge, here's the evidence to support it. And then we hit education and it's like, just do the PowerPoint. Evidence-based education is as important that we should be doing things that have evidence to show it. And so I, and this is why I love teaching so much is I'm always looking for what the new data is about how to best help students learn, keep them engaged. And so the, the little pearl or something to, to consider is what are you doing every day or every week to increase your knowledge of knowing what evidence is out there to best help our students. And if you ever find yourself getting bored with that same PowerPoint or that same Zoom meeting, that's a time to say, what is it that's out there that I can help engage students and add that spark again so that you're looking forward to the class session because you're excited to see how it's going to work with the students. I love that you've made that as deliberate a part of your professional development as anything else as the content area that that you have specialty in so thank you so much and as always i enjoy our conversations i'm sure our learners will get a lot out of this or our listeners will get a lot of uh, out of this session as well so thanks dr morton for taking the time today it's my pleasure thanks so much Thanks for listening to the Teaching in Medicine podcast with new episodes on the first Monday of every month. Please check us out on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and reach out if you have ideas for new episodes.